Well, good morning. Thanks for being with us this morning. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. In honor of Father's Day, the most natural conversation that we could be having this morning would be the fact that we as the church are the bride of Christ. It just fits, right? I'm joking because it actually feels a little strange to me as a man, and maybe to some of you, you macho men out there, it feels really uncomfortable to be called the bride of Christ. And yet, God's, as God's new community, the church, we are called the bride of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches, men included. It might make you feel uncomfortable, but it's the same way that the Bible talks about all believers, women included, as sons of God. Our translations will often translate that as sons and daughters so that we don't get hung up on the gender. Uh, but the Bible never removes uh, the beauty of the male and female genders and the diversity of culture or ethnicity. It's not trying to remove that, but actually it's trying to do something theological. When the Bible includes men in the bride of Christ and calls women sons of God, it has more to do with theology than it does gender. It's trying to communicate something. You see, in biblical times, the culture was a primogenitive culture, and if you use that word in Scrabble, you win automatically. Um, a primogenitive culture is a culture in which the only one who can inherit anything from the father is the firstborn son. If you're a firstborn daughter, you get nothing. Only the firstborn son, and they inherit everything. And in that culture, when women are given no rights, God comes along and says, women who follow and believe in Jesus are called sons of God, which means that they have been given the right to receive the full inheritance of God. It's a theological statement. And as God's new community, the church is the bride of Christ, men included. Because in a similar way, it's a theological statement. As the bride of Christ, it's communicating that we are in a committed and intimate relationship with him. It's theological. And these two things, commitment and intimacy, they go hand in hand. Where there is true, genuine trust and commitment, intimacy can grow and flourish. True intimacy can only be experienced in a committed relationship. And our world continues to promote a culture in which commitment is optional, um, and intimacy can be experienced with a simple swipe of your finger uh, with a one-time hookup. The problem is they confuse intimacy with selfish pleasure or using someone else for your personal gain. And we confuse intimacy with sex, but as we'll see this morning, intimacy is far more than that. It's a deep oneness. And God has designed one relationship on earth here to be the most intense place where commitment and intimacy are experienced, and that would be marriage. Marriage is the most intense of all our relationships, and the Bible uses that metaphor of marriage to help us understand more of our relationship with God, that we are the bride of Christ. And to understand what that means, I want us to go this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, which is really the most well-known and important passage in the Bible on marriage. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to go there with me. Ephesians chapter 5, We'll be in verse 21 to start. You're probably familiar with this passage. If you've gone to any wedding ever, you've probably heard it used in the ceremony, and rightly so. Many helpful sermons and books and resources on marriage have been used this passage um, to help us think about what marriage is designed to be and how it should operate best. 
But I want us to notice this morning what the Apostle Paul does as he writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, that what he's doing is writing about something that's far bigger than any individual couple or marriage. And so this morning, regardless of your marital status, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, then this passage is about you. So hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, there's a lot of incredible things in this text, especially with tremendous implications for marriages. But I don't want that to be our focus this morning. This morning, I want you to see what it is that Paul is really talking about underneath this conversation about marriage. He says it in verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery, all that he's been talking about. Husbands and wives, but he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This isn't really about human marriage. Ultimately, he says that our marriages are designed to be a mirror or a model of what our experience is as the church, as the bride of Christ. Our marriages are living displays of the gospel. And in this passage, you see both commitment and intimacy. You see the commitment of Christ, who is the groom, his commitment to his church, that he loved her, verse 25, and gave himself up for her. This is commitment on a whole nother level. The gospel puts to shame any type of commitment story that we can pull out of, that we can make up, any romantic novel, any movie, any story we can think of. In this story, in the gospel, we find that the God of the universe, the creator of all things, willingly becomes a part of his creation. He enters into this world of suffering and was unjustly accused and murdered. But again, he did this willingly in order to ransom his bride to draw and call people, men and women, to himself. And his commitment to his bride is unwavering. He held nothing back, nothing in reserve, all the way till to the point of death. And all of this took place while we were still enemies, wanting nothing to do with him. And his commitment to you is not just to the past or to the present, but it extends on to the future. You see that in verse 27. He is committed to her, to present her, the church, to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Ultimate commitment from Christ to his people before they made any move towards him, while we were not even interested in him. 
And all of that commitment has a purpose in mind, has a goal in mind. Look at verse 31. For this reason, for all this commitment, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's the goal, to become one flesh. You might notice that your Bible has quotations around this. Hopefully it's got a footnote or somewhere telling you that this is from Genesis chapter 2. And Paul is taking us back in our imaginations to the very first human, to Adam, and how God put Adam to sleep and took a rib from his side and created a bride for him, Eve. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 says this, says that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. To be naked and unashamed, not talking as much about physical nakedness as it is about relational vulnerability, intimacy, becoming one flesh, to, be, to know and be known. It's what you and I have been created for. But remember, we're not talking about human relationships here. Paul says this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You see, the creation of Eve from Adam's side foreshadowed Christ, who was called the last Adam, who was not just put to sleep, but was put to death. And a spear was thrust into his ribs as he hung on the cross and what flowed from that wound were the blood that forgives our sins and the water that washes us clean. The two sacraments of the church so that Christ created from his flesh a bride for himself. So that we could be one with him. We could grow to be one flesh with Christ. You, me, we together as the church are created to experience oneness with God, with the creator of the universe, to be one flesh with, him, with God himself in the same way a bride and a groom are one. If that doesn't sound a little bit crazy to you, if that doesn't sound super audacious to say that we can be one with God, then one of two problems or, or both are taking place. One is you have an overinflated view of yourself and or you have a really small view of God because this should blow your mind that the God of the universe would care about us enough to invite us to know him and to be in relationship with him. That is humbling. But this is true throughout all of scripture that God wants us to know him and he wants to be intimately connected and one with his people. Similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, which shows his response to God's crazy invitation. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. We've talked about this verse before and this whole idea, but what happens is as creatures who live in a post-enlightenment time, the enlightenment period in the 18th century, which brought intellect and information and reason to the forefront, elevated that into extreme position, that has shaped the way that we hear what Paul is saying. So when we hear Paul say, nothing is more important 
than knowing Christ. Everything else is garbage. We often think about gaining more information about Jesus, like a classroom. The problem is what Paul is talking about is more like bedroom knowledge than classroom knowledge. This is the type of knowing that a husband and wife experience, where it's deep oneness and connection and sharing all aspects of life, being naked and unashamed. It's not as much about I have some facts about some celebrity. It's intimacy, not just information. And I think this is really important because many of us have settled for some sort of pathetic, anemic version of Christianity. And there's no wonder many of you are bored and apathy is is growing strong in the church. Because you think that you've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness so that you can attend a service once a week. Or you think you've been forgiven of your sins so that you can read your Bible for five minutes a day and check that off and feel good about yourself. Or you think that Jesus shed his blood and rose again so that you can be a little bit more moral. Like there's so much more. We have been invited into something so much greater than you could ever imagine. That the God who breathes out galaxies and sustains them by a word of his mouth, the one who is the definition of perfection and holiness, the one whom all creation obeys, who is the source of light and life and, and love and joy and peace, He's invited you to know him, not in a distance, but to come close, to be one with him. It's like he's gotten down on his knee and proposed to you. Will you accept his invitation to know him? This is amazing because this means that no matter where you are, there is more of you, more of him that you can learn, that you can grow into. If you've been walking with Christ for 60 years, there's more. If you've only been walking with Christ and and following him for a couple of months, there's so much more. Which is why Paul continues in Philippians 3, verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or have arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I've not arrived at this goal yet. There's so much more. Think back with me to the marriage analogy. When would you say that you've arrived in marriage? When have, when have you accomplished marriage? It's a weird question, I know. Uh, after you've said your vows on your wedding day? No, that's, that's the start, right? What's the goal? The goal is to become one flesh. When will you achieve that? Well, in any human relationship, a man and a woman are going to spend all of their lives and still not arrive at total oneness. But there's joy in that process. And the more you lean into the idea of being one in all areas of life, the better your marriage will be. And now take that for a moment. Remove, your, remove one of the spouses, and repl- the, the finite small spouse, and replace them with the infinite unattainable God, the, the, the huge, massive, infinite God. And you'll understand a little bit of why Paul says what he says. I've not taken hold of this goal. I haven't arrived at understanding all of who God is. There's more. And you and I want to lean into that as followers of Christ, to press on, to take hold of what Christ has taken hold of us for. 
We will spend all of eternity going further up and further in. It's a way that C.S. Lewis describes this idea of, of never ending our pursuit of God and experiencing the joy of that, of being in his presence for all of eternity. He does it in his Chronicles of Narnia series. He says that we'll go further up and further in for all of eternity as we grow to love and know and grow in oneness with God. I'm pressing toward that to win the prize. And just a little spoiler alert, your prize is not a mansion in heaven or a new heavenly body. The prize is to know Christ. He is the prize. But here's the amazing thing. The Bible is crystal clear that if left to ourselves, not a single one of us would naturally seek after God. Romans chapter 3 says that. Left to ourselves, not a single one of us wants Christ as our prize. We're far too easily amused with counterfeits. And if you need proof, just think about what consumes your mind, what fills your mind when you have a spare moment. When you lay in bed at night, what do you think about? What are your daydreams about? What is your heart drawn to? Is it your work and success? Is it being entertained and comfort, pleasure, your reputation and growing it or maintaining it? My point is, if you actually take time to reflect on this, you'll realize that left to our own ways, we'll always settle for an idol, something less, something finite instead of the infinite. To me, this is what makes Jesus even more amazing. Is that while you and I were not interested in pursuing him and making him our prize, he pursued us and made us his prize. While we were lost, settling for counterfeit love and fake intimacy, God came to us. And Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning or despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that to experience intimacy requires vulnerability. Being known, being seen, naked, exposed, and yet, Jesus makes that first move towards us of intimacy. Jesus took the first step, and on the cross, he made himself fully vulnerable, naked and exposed. Physically, yes, but even more importantly, exposed himself to the weight of our sin and our shame. Why? For the joy set before him. The joy of knowing and being known by us. The joy of intimacy with us, oneness with us, that was worth it to him. You see, God knew exactly what he was getting with you and with me. Christ knew exactly what he was purchasing with his blood on the cross. He knew he was getting someone who at the core was rebellious to him. An idol-making factory full of greed and lust and insecurity and fear and Keep going on with that list. He knew all of it. He knew everything that you've experienced that has been done to you that makes you feel shame. He knows everything that you've done that you're ashamed of. The parts of you, your looks, your personality, your sin, your fear. He knew all of it. And he is not ashamed of you. He actually invites you to be known. And then he works to remove your shame and to lift your head. And he says to you, I've removed your shame. I've taken it to the grave. I've scorned it. Scorning it, meaning he's treated the shame as little value compared to the joy of sharing himself with you. 
you and I, for some reason, were worth it to God. It's amazing. And when you experience the love of someone who sees you totally exposed and refuses to shame you, but instead moves towards you in love as you are, that love changes you. It's been said that love awakens love in return. All of our actions, our love, our commitment towards God are only ever first reactions to his love for us. And if our purpose is to know Christ and to be known by him, then that begins to transform everything that we experience in life. Everything is an opportunity to know Christ more. In the times of rejoicing and suffering, in the times of happiness and excitement, in the moments of boredom, moments by yourself and moments with others, in everything you do is now an opportunity to know Christ more. And our hearts begin to cry the same things that we read in Philippians 3 with Paul, where he says, I want to know Christ. Everything else is worthless. And if this morning that is your desire, you feel that in your soul deep down, this desire to grow with Christ and to know him, then be encouraged because that is the work of God's spirit in your life, calling you deeper into himself. You see, it's for this reason that Jesus left his father to be united with his wife, the church, and the two will become one flesh. Do you hear the promise in that? You are one with Christ by faith, and one day you will experience that to the fullest extent. Go this afternoon and read Revelation 21 and 22 for a beautiful poetic picture of what that day will be like when Jesus returns. And in the meanwhile, what does it look like for us to pursue oneness with Christ, to lean into that? I think the first thing is that we ask for it. We talk to him about it. This is the idea that the Bible calls repentance, where we turn from the many things that have consumed our thoughts and our loves, that are just pale in comparison to the infinite God. We turn from those and we confess those and we repent of those, meaning that we turn away from them and we ask him for intimacy. We say, Jesus, increase my love for you. Increase my trust in you. You must increase and I must decrease. But repentance also involves a change in our life, and we work then to create habits and make decisions in our own lives that line up with those requests that we've just made. It's a two-way relationship that God invites us into. Genuine faith and repentance are always shown not just in our words of surrender and cries for help, but also expresses itself in our steps of faith. And so you begin to fill your life with things that foster love and intimacy with Christ, and we work to rid ourselves of all the things that would slow that and get in the way of that and, and pull our loves in other directions. And so after this service, with whoever you're worshiping with right now, whether it's your family or your community group or some friends and neighbors, or if you're, still, if you're worshiping by yourself and, and viewing the service by yourself, pick up the phone when we're done here and call someone and talk about these two questions. The first is, what is it that really stirs your affections and love for Jesus? What is it that you find when you do them? You find yourself drawn closer to Jesus. He has given us many means of grace, scripture, prayer, the sacraments. But there's plenty of other things that each of us, when we do them and when we, when we spend time doing certain things, certain habits, we find ourselves drawn to Christ. For me, periods of silence are crucial. If I find my, my, my mind is filled with too much noise, I, 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 it gets drowned out and I, and I don't hear the voice of the Spirit. 
What are those things for you? Talk about them. How can you fill your life with those things more and more? And the second question is, what is it that robs you of intimacy and life and love with God? And what builds your dependence on other things? And how can we together in community work to rid those things of our lives? Again, I said just a second ago that for me, too much noise and screen time, whether it's certain movies or shows or, or too much news intake or honestly too much internet window shopping, it, it lessens my thankfulness and my love for Christ and, and I find myself being pulled in other ways, other desires that would pull me from Christ. Perhaps it's some addictions or sin or unfelt, unhelpful habits in your life. What is it that robs your love for Jesus? And talk about those because the reality is you can't do this by yourself. Notice that Jesus doesn't say you are the brides of Christ. This is not polygamy here. There is a bride of Christ. We collectively together as the church are the bride of Christ, which means it's not just a you and Jesus thing. So the question begins, how do we grow in intimacy together with one another and with Christ? Which means it's going to take some vulnerability. How are we going to confess our sins to be fully known? Can I allow myself to be exposed and have you see my sin and trust that you're going to receive me and love me? How can we make our lives more dependent on one another? It's going to take some work, especially after 14 weeks of isolation. But friends, the only way we can grow in intimacy with Christ is in the context of community as the bride of Christ. And you know with all the differences that we have and with all the sin and the hurt and the potential for real division that it's going to take an act of the Spirit of God to make that possible. So why don't we turn to him and pray, asking him for this. Father, we, we come to you wanting to know you. Our hearts cry out that we long for you. Would you increase our love for you? Would you draw us to yourself? Would you reveal yourself to us more and more? Would you give us the courage and the wisdom to fill our lives with things that, that foster that love and rid them of things that would rob our love for you? And Lord, give us the courage to have these conversations in community because we need one another. We are the bride of Christ. We love you. Help us to love you more. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.